It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am just really excited and honored to welcome Laura Mosley. I want to tell you a little bit about Laura. Laura is a single mother of three children. She has survived 23 plus years of domestic and and sexual abuse. She's a customer service rep for a social service organization, and she loves helping people. Laura is a domestic violence advocate in her spare time. Do you have spare time with three children? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't think so. She is a blogger, a future podcaster, a public speaker, and community activist. So Laura, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I really appreciate that. So tell me what your future podcast would be about. Um, so many times domestic violence victims, when they're trying to get out, don't have the resources and that can kind of keep them stuck. So if I can give resources, like how to do a safety plan, how to contact your advocate and, and, and keep things private, things like that, I think that's going to help more people get out of the thinking that they're stuck. I know I've been there. Um, it's hard to to get out of that thinking like, oh, I, I can't make it on my own. I can't do this without them. You can. And, you know, just a lack of resources is a lot of what keeps people held back. So, yeah. And I would think that that's uh, not a I would think that it would be unique to find those kinds of resources um, from people who have survived domestic violence. Right. And it's just so many things that, that, you know, when you are trying to flee your situation, you don't think of, um, I was assisting somebody as recently as today and she got away, which I'm happy to report, but I said, you turned off your location services on your cell phone. Right. And she goes, Oh crud. Oh no. So things like that, you just don't think of, but if you have them on then anytime you're online or on your phone, it reports. So, you know, the number one priority is safety. So it's just, and, and you, I know when I was kind of getting out of my situation, I was just kind of in a fog. So it didn't, uh, didn't register some of the things that I needed to do in order to distance myself and keep myself safer. Right. So, and like with any crisis, you're not thinking with the clarity that you would um, outside of a crisis. And so, like you say, it's a cloud. It can be just a, a cloud or be just a fog that that kind of takes over your whole life. So you're not thinking in ways that would be maybe the, the clearest and most helpful. Exactly. And, you know, just just taking a moment and, and instead of just taking a moment thinking about it, I mean, if you've never been there, you don't have any idea what you're going to need or what you're going to have to anticipate. So a podcast about that. And then eventually, you know, getting into, to interviewing survivors and and how they got out and, and things like that, I think are, are, are crucial. Well, I think that's great. We'll look forward to hearing, hearing more about that. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family. You have three children. How old are they? 
I do. I have um, three. Uh, my oldest is, uh, let me see, 28. <laughs> I think about that one. 28. And uh, my middle one, daughter is uh, almost 23. She'll be 23 next month. And my youngest is a uh, 15-year-old child. And my family is a little unique in the fact that my oldest is a transgender uh, woman and uh, my middle child is pregnant and <laughs> my youngest is on the autism spectrum. So okay. it makes for a busy, busy time. That is, that is a busy, busy world. Um, so you're going to be a grandma. I am. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know how to think about that right now. I'm still processing that one. Um, well, you know, I, I am a grandma and I look at the world and just think, I cannot believe that I'm old enough for this. But then I look at the ages of my kids and I think, okay, I really am. But (laughs) I just, I guess I thought I'd have a lot more gray hair by now. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I understand being a grandma with the apron and the gray hair and the glasses. And yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. So no, it's, exciting. It's, it's getting more and more exciting. She's doing in March, but I mean, having like a minor child and now a grandchild, I still have to share that with my abuser, unfortunately. Right. Right. Uh, So your child that is on the autism spectrum, are they high functioning or how he, he is higher functioning. His, um, his issues are in like socialization and, uh, he, he is making more friends, which is good, but like social cues, what you and I might feel like is inappropriate. He may or may not know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, constant reminders. Um, he was trying to tell me he didn't need school. He learned enough uh, the other day. <laughs> I'm like, no, you're in eighth grade. You, you still need to continue to go. Yeah. So. You know, just things like that, getting up on time. He doesn't correlate that. Oh, yeah, I have to get up on time for school and a job in the future. So, you know, we're working on that hygiene issues a little bit. But yeah, well, you know, I think that eighth grade boys in general deal with hygiene issues. (laughs) Yeah. um, Being on the autism spectrum, being a teenager and being, um, you know, full of testosterone, that's not a good mix. And you know, I have to, I have to kind of battle that sometimes just to get him to go to school. Thankfully the school works with me pretty well on that. Um, but you know, it's a challenge. I keep telling myself I have five more years, five more years. So, yep. Well, you know, I just, I have great admiration for those of you that are dealing with, um, high needs or special needs kiddos. Um, it's a whole, it's a whole different ball of wax. It is. And especially when it's something I always knew was there and his dad, my abuser denied there was anything wrong with, with our, our youngest. There's nothing wrong with anybody that has autism. They just think differently. Right. They, they are just wired uniquely. And, you know, I've never thought that of course, you know, when you talk to a narcissist, they don't understand that concept either. Mm-hmm. So, and they're not going to, they're not going to even right. try. Right. Their lens is totally different. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, mental health and kind of your own, um, journey through, um, mental health and coming to understand, um, understand that in your life. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. 
Um, I know being married, I guess my marriage was total of a, of 26 years before we were actually divorced. He did put the divorce off for a year and a half. Um, but you know, having to undergo all of this stuff, being a a domestic, uh, abuse victim, you kind of get into a state of numbness and, um, you push it all down. So when you finally get out of that situation, it takes a while for your emotions and things to come back. But when they did, it was just probably all at once. Um, mm-hmm. so I had a hard time processing all of that. Um, as a result, just going to a counselor and, and working through some of that, I have PTSD. And, you know, when I was told that was my diagnosis, I'm thinking, no, no, no. Veterans have PTSD. I've never, I wasn't right. in a war. I wasn't in a combat situation, but actually I was, I was in a personal war. I was in a combat situation behind closed doors. So, you know, the more that I processed that, that made sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And they, they called mine complex PTSD because I was in that situation for so long. I was hypervigilant for so long that um, the least little thing, the things that you wouldn't think would set somebody off do. Um, you know, I, I drive a Volkswagen Beetle and my kids and I like to play, well, they used to like to play punch buggy or, um, uh, what do we call it? Slug bug. Slug bug. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my kids are in the backseat kind of duking it out and I'm like, Hey, you guys need to stop that. We don't hit. I've, I've curbed that game completely because that's promoting violence. You know, it's just something as simple as that, or, you know, when you're watching something on TV and, and, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, the, you know, the actor slaps the actress, whatever the situation is that I come unglued. I have to leave the room. I can't, I can't do it. Right. You find yourself tensing up and kind of losing, losing control of your senses and right. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, that sense of high alert and hypervigilance that happens with veterans, um, happens with survivors of war. We don't think of that all the time in domestic violence or in situations that may seem just slightly abnormal to other people, but they're really, really traumatic. We don't, we don't attribute those, um, those things all all the time. Right. Exactly. I I know I have friends that are veterans and and they can't do fireworks because of explosions and something as, as, as innocent as we might think fireworks would be. I totally get that. It's not fireworks per se. If I'm prepared for it, it's not so bad, but any loud noise, my kids used to sneak up on me and surprise me and we'd laugh. I don't think it's funny anymore. Right. I can't do that either Mm -hmm. from behind, you know, I can't, I can't deal with, deal with that. And, and I know it probably, you know, to, to maybe to my children, it makes it seem like I'm just becoming, you know, ultra sensitive and, and picky, but it's amazing how once you're away from that situation, you're always on guard when you're in it. Now you, you know, you think, okay, I can relax. And, you know, it, I had, you know, one of my kids sneak up behind me and, and, you know, try to scare me. And I I was, you know, I cried for 10 minutes, you know, so can't do that to me anymore. <laughs> and I right. mean, my kids are pretty understanding. I wasn't the only one that endured abuse. So. 
Right. So talk to me a little bit about um, suffering sexual and domestic violence and abuse in your marriage. When did you first know that the way that you were living was not um, not safe and not nurturing? Well, I know um, we had some financial issues when my first two were younger hadn't had my third one yet. Um, my, uh, I mean, it it was, he always seemed very touchy, very, you know, short fuse, you know, tried not to to Mm -hmm. ignite that, you know, still young enough to think, Oh, we're just young and in love and passionate, you know, it just, but when he had to, he lost his job and he had to, he watched the kids at home. Um, our oldest didn't do something that he thought was done properly or in, you know, in a certain amount of time. And he, uh, ultimately spanked him, but with, you know, not his hand with some, and honestly, it wasn't a belt even either. It was something else then, you know, leaving marks on that child. I felt like that, you know, I had to leave that situation. That was becoming a problem. This wasn't just, Mm -hmm. you know, what I thought was like bipolar or anything like that. Cause I couldn't put my finger on what that was that he was dealing with that. I thought, you know, this is starting to become a problem. This is problematic. Um, that was the point where I thought maybe, you know, maybe we need to go ahead and go to counseling. He's got high frustration or something, but I, this can't continue. This is not going to happen to my kids. Right. Um, so, you know, that, and, and I, my parents didn't live close. They lived about seven, eight hours away. So, you know, I had to go stay with his mom. And after about a week, she's like, yeah, you need to go back. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like, mm, no, I mean, you know, I was buying groceries and things, but, you know, getting pushed back into that situation did not, didn't help. I don't think. Right. But, you know, and then it's just, it seems like the older he got, the more it escalated, the less the cycle took to, mm-hmm. you know, to switch around and, um, you know, and I'm thinking, is he manic depressive? Is he, you know, bipolar? I, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on, but this is not normal, mm-hmm. but you know, it was when always did it me. Become, when <laughs> did it become violence against, against you? Um, I mean, it was off and on the first time we had an issue was when our oldest was 18 months old. Um, he was, uh, going to go somewhere with his uh, brother and I, you know, said something snide, I guess, probably not, you know, the best thing, but nothing that it warranted, you know, what he did. He grabbed me and, you know, shoved me grabbed my shirt, but also got some of my skin and shoved me up against the wall and, uh, told me I wasn't going to talk to him like that. I wasn't his mother. And that scared me, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, then he let go of me and left. So I'd never had that particular thing happen with him. So, you know, my, my sister-in-law was there to shop with me, you know, we were going to go our separate ways and I just lost it. And told her what, you know, what he did. And that's when she was like, you know, that's not appropriate. That's abusive. Even that early on, that's something she said. But, you know, I mean, 
course, it was something he apologized for later. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I was really, you made me really mad, you know, and, and it's something a, a victim dismisses because they're sorry, you know, and, you know, I was raised in a, in a Catholic home and, and, you know, we, we forgive and move on, you know, everybody in my family is happily married for a long, long time. So, you know, it's just something that you do, but I mean, I had bruises for a week on my chest. So I had to look at that for a little while and, you know, as a reminder. So, and then, and then, like I said, it, it went on and off throughout the whole marriage. How do you communicate to uh, survivors of domestic violence when it is um, appropriate or reasonable to forgive? And at what point do you say, you know, I can forgive you, but enough is enough and you, you can't treat me that way. How do you communicate that line to survivors? You know, the first time he did that to me, I know I said, you know, I forgive you, but that was not appropriate. If you're mad at me, you know, I understand, but that, that scared me, you know, and, and I think, you know, if somebody were in my situation, they should do the same thing. Anytime you're in a a relationship, whether you're married or not, you should communicate, Hey, that I didn't like that. You made me, you know, I felt use your I statements. I felt like this, not you made me because that's more Mm -hmm. of a narcissistic Mm -hmm. view. Um, you know, and, and people can mess up every so often, but when it starts becoming a regular thing, then you get devalued, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. once in a blue moon understood, but, and also a lot of people don't realize domestic violence isn't just physical, it's mental, it's emotional, it's financial, any, it's a form of control is what I tell people power and control. That's what abusers are all about. And it, they don't have to, they don't have to hit you. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about, um, sexual violence in, in marriage. Um, you know, that's, that's typically hard to talk about because how do you identify that within a committed relationship? Talk to me a little bit about that. Right. I know in the church, you know, husbands and wives, that's, that's part of, of that relationship. Sex is a a part of that. It's not the only thing though, but you know, it's something that should be mutual and consensual when you're made to do something in a marriage, sexual wise, that's, I mean, there's no consent there. There's, there's no boundaries. There's no personal respect that's rape. And a lot of people don't realize that they're like, how in the world can you be raped when you're married? No is no. And I had to learn that. I learned that pretty early on when there were things that he wanted to do. I did not, I wasn't comfortable, you know, let me try and get, you know, I'll I'll think about it. Let me try and, uh, get to that point. You know, no, no, what he wanted, what he wanted when he wanted it. So, um, and also the coercion of, oh, well, if I can't get that from you, I'll get it from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Didn't sit well with me either. No, of course not. But um, when, um, 
when you're trying to describe that uh, that boundary line to survivors, uh, how do you describe that to them? <clears throat> well, you know, it it's hard. It, it was it was difficult for me because my abuser knew my past. I had been raped when I was sixteen, so you know maybe that made me like a vanilla type person. So be it. Um, you have to, you know, but like I said, it has to be mutual. So if you're not willing to, if you don't trust the other person or you're not sure and you're like, you know what, I can't do that. They need to respect that. And if they don't, then, I mean, you do have the right to call the police. It's more, a little bit more commonplace now, but even now law enforcement will go, yeah, you guys are going to have to work that out. Um, so it it is very hard to explain that to, to victims and, and survivors on, on how, you know, consent kind of works within a marriage. Um, So what I hear you saying is wherever you set your boundary line, if your partner goes beyond that or violates that or coerces beyond that, that is, that is the violation. Yes. You know, it's, it's, you know, I guess I'm one of those people that I can say, you know, I don't like that. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. And, um, you know, somebody pushing beyond that request isn't love. It isn't respect mm-hmm. at that point. And, and that's hard. That's hard to communicate, especially to, to like, you know, if somebody called the police, um, they just, you know, look at you like you're crazy and just say, you guys are gonna have to work that out or somebody needs to leave the home. Right. You know, they don't, it, it is very, it's a very hard gray area to, to deal with. And I, and I get that. Um, but, you know, I'm even working, you know, even as young as my kids were, you know, consent. I mean, when they start being of an age where they get you know, become teenagers, become sexually curious, you know, we have the talk about everything. I try to be as open as I can with my kids and, you know, no is no, you have to honor that. I don't care how mad it makes you and consent. And, and even my, my 15 year old can tell me what that means. Right. Uh, You know, I had a, I had a therapist once who said that abuse is anything less than um, kind, loving and nurturing. So if it falls below that line, then it is abusive. And I just thought that's really drastic, but I understand what she's saying, which is what you're saying, which is um, if, if it's not, if it's not an agreement mutual, if it's not, um, you know, no means no, then it is, it does fall below that line of reasonable expectation. Right. Right. Exactly. So you had a protective order against your abuser. Um, how did that come to be? And then he violated it um, several times. So how did you how did you navigate those those waters in those years? Um, well, uh, the day the 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 next morning after uh, the last episode occurred. Um, I had a very kind police officer. I had to take my daughter and I to the ER. I didn't want to ride in an ambulance. Uh, but he said, you know, he's going to be seen by the judge tomorrow. If you don't have to go, but if you go, it's going to make more of an impression. 
He said, I just want to leave you with that. And I, I so appreciate what he said, because even though I only had a few hours of sleep, I went to my, my daughter and I went to the court hearing and, um, you know, the judge called me up there and said, okay, I have to ask you, do you fear for your life? And my abuser had shot at me the day prior. He missed me, but, and I said, yes, your honor, I do. And that was the hardest thing I think I've ever had to do because I, he was sitting there staring at me. My abuser was and the whole entire room. Um, but, uh, they granted an emergency protective order. That's where I met the advocate that helped me out so much. And, uh, you know, so once he was released, um, you know, the first time he violated it, we were in, and, and the whole emergency protective order, if, if he finds that he's in the same vicinity as me, he's supposed to leave, not make any scene, you know, doesn't matter where he has to leave. And I'm walking around in the grocery store trying to grocery shop for, you know, the rest of my family. And he walks down an aisle, looks me straight in the eye, smiles and just keeps on going. And I, I, I had a panic attack and went to the cash register and he's in the line right next to mine. And, um, I abandoned my cart. (laughs) So sorry, sorry, Kroger. I had to abandon my cart, but I went home and I'm crying and hysterical and my middle child's like, mom, what's matter? I was, I sat in the dark in my bathroom in a ball. And she's like, I, I told her what was going on. She goes, you got to call police. And, uh, I'm glad that she made me do that. I called them and they came over and took a statement and went over and reviewed the cameras, saw that he was just very much in my vicinity and, um, went and issued, a a warrant for his arrest. And he just kept doing that. You know, there was a festival in town and he, you know, parked his motorcycle right next to mine. I have pictures of it and I had to, I just was so fed up and then walked himself and another woman, you know, back and forth across the booth that I was assisting at, you know, things like that. Very blatant, very, um, it was a show. It was a show for me, I think, to, to as a message, you know, that he, I couldn't keep him down. And he didn't think I was capable of, of, of reporting to the police. And, you know, I, I think I exceeded his expectations because he went to jail uh, three times because of the stuff that he did. Um, so where did you, you know, find the courage to stand up and say enough is enough? This isn't right. Um, you can't, you can't treat me that way. You can't, um, violate this order. Where did you find that kind of courage? Um, well, you know, initially I didn't call the police on the final, you know, big physical episode that we had, uh, my oldest did, but, um, you know, he beat me in front of my then 10 year old child, our youngest child. And, uh, I sat in the car with my dogs because my daughter had removed the youngest, my middle daughter had removed the the youngest from the situation, took him to her friend's house and came back to make sure I was okay. And by that time, the police and my oldest were there. Um, But I sat in my car and just cried because 
I thought I can't do this anymore. He just did this. He he also while the child while the younger two were gone, knocked me unconscious, gave me a, a concussion. I'm like I I can't do this anymore. I I can't. He's there. You know, if I come back, I'm I'm just gonna die. Uh, you know, and and he can't do this in front of the kids. He can't do this to the kids because that is still ultimately to the kids when they're watching him beat their mother um, physically. So I just, I just was, I guess at that point was just completely exhausted and done um, because it's just, it was just, it just had become too much. It had become unmanageable. It had become dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I, I just realized the fact that I was probably going to die if I, you know, there wasn't going to be a next time. Right. right. So, so it's, um, both the responsibility and realization as a parent of what was going on and how that was impacting them. And the realization that you had reached a point where it was, you were going to die. Exactly. Um, I still have a bullet hole in my wall of my bedroom Mm. from where he shot, he, what, you know, he, he just kind of shot into the air, but I was in the vicinity I don't know that he was exactly aiming at me. I don't know. I can't, can't attest to his mental capacity or state at that point, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's something I have to look at and I don't want to look at, (laughs) Right. but I do it to remind myself, Hey, you lived. So I don't know. It just still gives me survived. Yeah. still makes me sweat when I look at that thing, but yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, it's when, you know, I had a, a, an advocate, you know, in the past tell me, you know what, when you're done, you're done, you'll know. Um, so, so had you tried to leave before, or was this, um, just a, a single time? No, um, this was my fifth time. I know the average, I think is seven times right now. This was my fifth time uh, trying to, to leave, um, this, well, I, and, and being thankfully being successful, unfortunately, not everybody is successful, um, at that. And, and, you know, I always tell people, you know, no matter what, even if you go back, you know, you can still contact me. I'll still talk Mm -hmm. to you. Uh, I get it. I'm, I'm not going to judge anybody for that. Um, you think, Oh, this time, you know, that's one of the things domestic violence victims were so we are so hopeful that that they'll really change this time. They're really going to make a change. And they, they just, unfortunately, they never do not fully. Yeah. So uh, talk to me a little bit about advocacy in these kinds of situations. What does that look like? What is, what does advocacy mean? Um, well, I, you know, I work for a social services organization, so I'm being a customer service person. I'm first line on the phones. Um, I've talked to people where they're just very cryptic. And then, you know, as I ask more questions, especially it's like, uh, I need to change my address and my phone number and nobody can look at this, right? Well, no, that's a privacy issue. Um, you know. But are well, you safe? Yeah. And that's exactly my question. Have you, I said, have you experienced any domestic violence issues? Are you safe? 
And usually uh, the person will go, wow, how did you know that? Because they're asking questions that I thought to myself, hmm, what can I do? How can I, I need to get out of here. I need to make it to where they can't trace me. Um, It's just, and their demeanor, especially if they go, yeah, I'm married. I'm kind of, you know, not, we're, we're separated, but he doesn't know it yet. You know, things like that, cues like that. I go, okay. So, I mean, that's, you know, and part of this social service organization is we are supposed to give out other resources. We're supposed to do everything we can do. And then if, you know, I, my question is, of course, are you safe? Um, do you need um, information on a local advocate? Um, do you know about 211? Things like that, just to make sure that they can keep on being safe and keep on surviving. Um, so, and, and it's funny because, I mean, now I, I have the, the domestic violence uh, advocacy organization that helped me call in and go, hey, Laura, we need to ask questions. You know, I have a, a victim here and, uh, you know, I'll ask if I can have their first name and I'll say, hi, how are you? You are so brave, you know, just to reassure that person what they're doing is the right thing. Right. Um, because I think so much, so many times we get some reassurance, but then we talk ourselves out of that situation and end up going back. So, you know, just, just things like that, anything that I can do to help, um, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, in addition to emotional support, what other tools or resources do people who are um, surviving domestic violence need? I mean, they, they need reassurance um, for like um, monetary situation, um, place to live, things like that. I mean, those resources are so important because <clears throat> also having been a victim of financial abuse, that's one of the things abusers want to withhold is money or security. So that person will come back to them. Um, Mm kind of like spider and the fly type thing, but you know, so if they, you know, if they call in, I'll go, okay, well, you know, have you made contact with family and social services? Have you made, Oh, you know, Oh, you're disabled. Um, do you receive social security? No, maybe you need to go ahead and make contact with them. Uh, you may qualify for, you know, receiving disability benefits and things like that, because people need to know that, you know, there's, you know, going to be some sort of a, a little bit of a comfort, even though safety is always, you know, a concern, but people have to have money come in and they have to have a roof over their head. They have to be able to eat. And I've told people even on the, number, you know, the customer, I'm a customer service rep that I've had to go to food pantries and there's no shame in that, especially if you have kids, it's not about you. Exactly. Um, you know, so just things like that, they just have to have reassurance that there are resources that they can actually reach that other person doesn't have to be there to do it for them. Um, and that they're, they can be self-sufficient. Um, I think that's super, super important. You said that you, um, you left five times and like you said, the, the average is, is higher than that. What can people do to assist, um, victims in leaving or in recognizing the patterns that exist? What can people who love 
love victims do? I think people that support victims um, should become, even though we can see from the outside looking in, wow, that's abusive, that's dangerous. To, to learn more about the cycle of abuse, to learn how that works, to learn what narcissistic abuse is. And I think that, and I've, I've discussed this with, with Safe Passage, the people that help me, I think that we need more education on that for victims themselves. Um, a lot of victims, you know, after a few days, contact their abuser. They have to go no, they have to go no contact in order to, you know, make sure that, that they can get at, I mean, yeah, you've, there's this trauma bond. I had no idea about the whole trauma bond thing until Mm -hmm. after I got out. And the more that I learned about that, um, I'm thinking, wow, that makes so much sense. Um, it's, it's like, um, you know, when people are held captive and they start sympathizing with their captors, that's what you're doing effectively. And it's, People, if you don't know the psychology behind that, if you don't know, you know, if you have to look at it as a a point that they can't love you, it's control. It's all about control. Their version of love is control. You know, our version of love is as care and nurturing and, and, you know, total, two totally different things that they're not capable of it, that I think the more self-realization that there is, the better. And, and if the people that support victims and survivors knew that too, they wouldn't be so quick to push them out of their home saying, Hey, you got this. You're, you're good. No, they right. aren't good. Right. They still need that support. Um, and here's why. Um, but you know, I know that they concentrate a lot of that education on law enforcement officers. And I think that part's getting better, but now with law enforcement officers now is the definition of just who's the abuser and who's the victim because of LBGT plus community. Um, and that becomes kind of a gray area as well. So, I mean, there's always going to be, there's going to be a victim and there's going to be an abuser, an aggressor and a victim. It's just a dynamic. So um, I think there needs to be more education in that department as well. Definitely. What do you most want people and or your children to know about you and about your journey? That um, you have to do what's best for you first. And I know that sounds may sound selfish to some people that might be listening, but you can't help others if you don't help yourself first. If an airplane's going down and the oxygen masks are coming down, you have to put yours on first before you can put it on your child or the person next to you. Um, and then your family. Um, and you know, they, I always have an open door, uh, to them and to anybody else. And I'm going to believe you. If you have something to say to me, I'll believe you. I'll just listen. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, you know, also progress, even if it's slow is still moving forward. So, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm not, I've become a less judgmental person because of this. And I just, you know, want my kids to know that, you know, most of this I did for them, but I had to do it for myself too. Right. Because I can't imagine my life without them. And I'm sure they can't imagine their life without me. And then I wouldn't be getting to see this new grandchild if I didn't, you know, make changes. 
And, you know, what, um, how did your families, um, support you or, um, or hinder the healing and separation and, um, that whole process? My family wanted me to get out completely and we're very supportive of that. I mean, you know, I, I have a very Christian family, um, you know, but after a while, my dad's like, you can only get forgive somebody so many times if they're going to keep doing the same thing over and over. That's insanity. Um, so I'm, I'm blessed that, that I had such an understanding family. His family was not understanding at all, even though his mother went through domestic abuse at the hands of mm. his father. Um, so, you know, I just, it was very, and, and I will say, and hopefully if anybody's listening, you know, they don't get too alarmed, but you lose a lot of friends or people you thought were your friends over this, especially if they're mutual friends, because they'll choose sides and, you know, and then I don't, I guess I had to get to a place where I don't blame anybody. If they, you know, if they don't want to be in my life, that's fine. Um, that's their choice. Um, you know, but, and I'm not going to judge anybody, but that doesn't mean I necessarily have to trust people again either. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard. That's one of the hard things, you know, you lose all these friends, they go to the other person. Um, you know, just because, just because, I mean, there's no explanation for it. You just have to kind of start being okay with being, you know, your own best friend for a while, Mm -hmm. because eventually new people come into your life that are supposed to be there that are positive that, you know, support you. Um, you don't need negative. What are the gifts of choosing yourself and prioritizing your safety and your needs? Once you get out, there's so much stuff. There's so many things that you didn't realize you were missing out on. Uh, you know, <laughs> the ability to go wherever I want to, whenever I want to is great. Um, you know, I didn't, I don't have to ask permission. I can do so safely. I, I I'm not going to have somebody shadowing me or somebody calling me every five minutes asking me where I'm at. Um, you know, things that I loved before I got into this relationship. One of the things was writing. He didn't let me do that because it took time. It took my focus off of him. And, um, I get to write now whenever I want to. And it's, it's great. You just, you miss out on so many things. And the only person you can truly depend on is yourself. Other people can disappoint you. They can abandon you the only person you have to be able to rely on yourself first. You have to be able to love yourself first before you can have, I really feel like before you can have, you know, continued successful relationships. Um, and, and, you know, after a while you kind of like being alone, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's very comforting because you get to have peace. You get to have, you know, a time to kind of reflect and, 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 and whatnot. So, um, you know, you have to just kind of turn inward, not completely, uh, because there you do need, you know, external support. You need to be able to talk about what happens. You need to be able to, you know, have uh, people to call when your safety has been compromised and all of that, but you have to be able to turn inward a little bit. Um, 
And, but you you're know, talking about turning inward in a prioritizing yourself kind of way, not in a exactly. selfish, isolating kind of way. No. Right. And, and yeah, definitely don't isolate, but you know, I got reflective when I, you know, was by myself, I got to pray, I got to meditate, I got to write and get feelings out and, and exercise and, and feel better and just didn't realize, you know, what a lot of victims don't want to do is think about what happened at some point you have to be by yourself and you will, you will think about that. Um, you know, so, I mean, if it's something that's super, super painful, definitely work through that with, with a counselor or therapist or whatever, but, you know, sometimes you have to be able to, to think through things and go, you know what, that in hindsight, that wasn't my fault. Or, you know, I could have done this differently, but I'm here, you know, just to kind of forgive, you have to be able to forgive yourself. And I think you, you can't do that. Well, you keep yourself so busy. You can't even, you don't even have time to think. Right. And that's a trauma right. response too. keeping yourself so busy that you don't have time to think is a trauma response. So taking time to slow down and reflect and things is, is a good thing even though we we see it that way at first. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, Laura, how do people uh, find you or follow you or uh, get a hold of you? Um, I am on Facebook. Uh, I run an inspirational Facebook page. Um, Basically I call it the, the DV walking wounded. And the reason I call it, uh, I put DV in front of it's for domestic violence, but the walking wounded always seem to signify, you know, people that came back from combat or war veterans and, and no disrespect to the veterans. But like I said before, we fought in our own personal war. So we are the walking wounded. We have to, you know, plaster a smile on our face and keep going when we're going through abuse. So that's why I named it that, but it's uh, the DV walking wounded. And I also have a blog that is called the same thing. It's DV walking I chose the .me because I was one, you know, me. Uh, so I blog about, you know, getting out and surviving and continuing on, you know, through all of this. And, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's been pretty therapeutic for myself, but it's really interesting when I look at the statistics and go, wow, 500 people have read this. That blows my mind, you know, because I think people want to see what's on the other side. Getting out right. is one thing, but you know, that can be one of the most unsafe times for a victim is once they get out. But after a while to see that it's going to be okay, or that you're still going to struggle, I think is something people need to see and they need to know. And, right. uh, well, thank you so much for your time and just your, um, your generosity and sharing your story. And I really appreciate it and hope that this reaches people who will find benefit and encouragement from it. Me too. Thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.Author, and on Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. Email Jill at JillRiley.org.